In a federal courthouse in Manhattan, 79-year-old E. Jean Carroll has been showing up day after day to submit to a grueling line of questioning. She's suing former President Donald Trump, alleging he sexually assaulted her nearly three decades ago. Slate's Christina Catarucci has been following along, says it's hard not to like Carol. She is just incredibly poised. She's funny. She's a former advice columnist and writer, so she has a lot of experience making light of difficult situations. But she's also teared up on the stand, both in moments of pain in recalling what she says happened and also in relief and gratitude for being able to share her story in court finally after so many years. E. Jean Carroll's story goes like this. She was shopping at an upscale department store in Manhattan when she ran into Donald Trump. They knew each other casually. She said hello. And then Trump asked her to shop with him, pick out a gift for a woman. And before he slammed her head against a wall and forced himself on her, the whole thing was kind of a gas. She was laughing about how strange it all was as it happened. She's like, this is going to be a great story. Trump's team is trying to make that reaction seem like it makes her story less credible. Um, But to... Anybody who's actually been in a situation that has turned scary or violent and then tried to make themselves feel better afterwards, it feels incredibly vividly true to life. On the stand, Carol has called herself part of the silent generation. She means a generation of older women who've been taught to keep quiet about the ways men mistreat them. Back when Carol first came forward, she didn't even like to use the word rape. I don't use that word. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be pictured as a woman who's thrown on the ground and has her bodice ripped and some man has his way with her. Mm -hmm. When her allegations were still fresh, Carol spoke to a couple of my colleagues over at Trumpcast. I like to see myself as, you know, went to battle, had a fight, fought, got out. That's, you know, that's it. The other word is just too weighted. But now, this trial... It's like watching Carol's understanding of her own life evolve in real time. In a New York courtroom today, a grave allegation against Donald Trump was said aloud and under oath. The first question her attorney asked why she finally took her case to court. I'm here because Donald Trump raped me. And when I wrote about it, he said it didn't happen. He lied and shattered my reputation. And I'm here to try to get my life back. It strikes me that one of the most important things about this case is that it could validate that even if a woman is worried that an assault is her fault, or even if she's literally laughing about what happened as it's happening or afterwards, it's still a violation, you know? People respond differently to violations. It sounds stupid and simple to say it, but it's also a degree of complexity that society has not historically afforded survivors of sexual assault. We've expected survivors to react in a uniform and predictable way, and that's just not how human beings deal with trauma. Today on the show, the evolution of E. Jean Carroll, from reluctant survivor to one of Trump's biggest antagonists, 
I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I have such a clear memory of when E. Jean Carroll first made her allegations against Donald Trump. Do you, too? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I do. This week, a prominent advice columnist became the 16th woman to accuse Donald Trump of either sexual assault or inappropriate sexual contact. It was like four years ago, right? Yes. Yeah, 2019. I read it. You know, it was an excerpt from her book in New York Magazine. And, you know, it was interesting because this wasn't in the heart of October 2016 when a lot of other allegations against Trump came out. It wasn't during, you know, the Me Too movement, which began about a year later. It sort of came out of nowhere. And yet it it had echoes of those two very weighty moments in the, you know, sort of immediate history of women coming forward with sexual assault allegations. And it also felt to me like the way she described it, it's such in her own voice. And the minute I was in there, he shut the door and pushed me up against the wall and bang, bang my head on the wall and kissed me. I just, it was so shocking. You know, he pushed me, held me with his shoulder and I was wearing a, a coat dress and tights and he pulled down the tights. You know, as I said, she had, used to have an advice column. She's a very voicey writer, kind of cheeky and sassy. And I remember really admiring the way that she was able to bring those elements of her own personality into this incredibly painful seeming recollection of an alleged assault. And also thinking, this sounds like something that could have happened. It seemed incredibly believable to me, not just because of all of the other allegations against Donald Trump, but because of the incredible detail with which she describes their encounter and how realistic it seemed to me. When Eugene Carroll came out with her story. How did Donald Trump, who was president at the time, react? He denied it, you know, uh, in the same way that he has brushed off a lot of his other accusers. He said, you know, I didn't know her. She's not my type, so I wouldn't have raped her. She's lying. She's a Democratic plant. She's after money and attention. I have no idea who she is. What she did is it's terrible. What's going on? So it's a total false accusation, and I don't know anything about her. And she's made this charge against others. And, you know, people have to be careful. And eventually, when she sued him, he tried to get the Department of Justice to defend him for something that he didn't do while he was president. Huh. Because she sued him while he was in office. Right. And so, you know, even though the alleged incident had happened, you know, 30 years earlier, he tried to get he wanted to get the Department of Justice to defend him as president and say, you know, you can't 
sue a president for for this kind of thing. You can't sue a president for defamation, basically. How did all this impact E. Jean Carroll? Like, has she spoken about, after she went public, the kind of response she got? Because, you know, I know she got a lot of support from women, but she also got a lot of hate, right? She actually said that the hate mail dwarfed the support mail, which is sad. But Donald Trump has an incredibly devoted fan base of people who are highly primed to suspect sexual assault accusers of lying or of trying to take down powerful men. Donald Trump also specifically argued that accusers like E. Jean Carroll are a threat to men everywhere. So, you know, women, this could happen to your husbands. Men, this could happen to you. You know, a stranger could come out of the woodwork, want to take you down and accuse you of sexual assault. And then, you know, your life is over. So he did a really good job of firing up his fan base. And they called E. Jean Carroll every name you could think of. You know, they obviously called her ugly in the same way that Donald Trump did. They said she was a liar. They sent her mail threatening all manner of violence against her. And so that's the basis of her lawsuit against him, that Donald Trump's maligning of her character, you know, he defamed her. It hurt her reputation. And it's caused a material impact on her life that that by calling her a liar, by saying he didn't do what she says he did, he should be found guilty of defamation and have to pay damages. Yeah, Carol was super concrete about this on the stand. She talked about having at least 10 serious threats to her life. She talked about purchasing ammunition for a gun she owns. And then, of course, she was fired from her job as an advice columnist at Elle magazine, where she'd been forever. Right. And this is also you know, not only the basis for proving defamation where, you know, you have to prove that someone actually caused material damages to your reputation and livelihood, but it's also her way of fighting back against the accusation that she's doing it all for attention because who would want that kind of attention? You know, she said on the stand, like, I would have loved to have attention for making a great three bean salad. I don't (laughs) want attention, this attention that one gets for being an alleged rape survivor. E. Jean Carroll's suit against Trump began as a defamation case back in 2020. Then, in 2022, New York passed a look-back law that gave adult sexual assault survivors a one-year window to take their assailants to civil court, even if the abuse happened outside the statute of limitations. Carroll used that law to add a battery charge to her case. Now, in order to win on either count, She's got to convince a jury that Donald Trump really did assault her that day in New York. Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopina, is doing everything he can to discredit that story. The thing that has really rankled a lot of people is Tacopina's really aggressive cross-examination of E. Jean Carroll after she gave her testimony. It's the playbook that has been used against alleged sexual assault survivors since literally the beginning of rape trials in the U.S. You know, he asked her over and over again, why didn't you call the cops? Isn't that strange? Why didn't you seek medical attention? Why didn't you take medication for the injury to your head that you said he caused? He was asking her to remember minute details from this alleged encounter that no one could be expected to remember 30 years on. You know, 
was it a revolving door or regular door? You know, trying to find inconsistencies between her account on the stand and something she might have said in an interview when she first accused Donald Trump of assault. And then importantly, he really pressed her on the fact that she didn't scream or she says she didn't scream while he was raping her. Yeah. In fact, she says specifically she laughed. Right. But he really was trying to hammer home that the fact that she didn't scream made her account unbelievable. He also sort of zeroed in on a couple things she said where, you know, I hit him with a handbag. I tried to knee him. You know, he my tights were pulled down and I was in heels, but I was trying to push him away. And he's basically saying, you know, I don't believe that that's physically possible. He cast doubt on her allegation that, you know, nobody was around. It's not strange for there to be nobody in a Bergdorf dressing room. And so it's not unbelievable that he could have done this and nobody would have noticed or seen him. And he's also casting suspicion on what she did after the attack. So not only why did you, why didn't you call the police, but also why didn't you call 911? Why didn't you call a family member? Why did you call these friends? Takapina's line of questioning has been off-putting to some observers. But Christina says it might still prove to be effective with a jury, especially because Carol admits she doesn't even remember the year when the alleged assault took place. The point about her not remembering the date, I think, is probably one of the biggest barriers that she's going to have to overcome in order to convince the jury that she's telling the truth. Just because, as Takapina has said, you know, it it doesn't give Donald Trump a chance to provide an alibi if she's not willing to put a date on the alleged encounter. You know, it's I think there are a lot of explanations for why someone wouldn't remember the exact date of a traumatic encounter that they didn't file a police report about, that maybe they talked to a couple friends about and then tried really hard to put out of their head for a couple decades. But, you know, in the eyes of the jury, hearing Taco Pina say, like, how is Donald Trump supposed to prove himself innocent if he can't say where he was on a specific date? It might be at, at least give them reason to wonder whether it's a fair allegation. Yeah. The burden of proof, though, is lower in a civil case than it is in a criminal one. So they don't have to find Donald Trump guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. They just have to find that it's basically 51% more likely that E. Jean Carroll is telling the truth than Donald Trump. It's called preponderance of the evidence. So, you know, I don't think that her inability to remember a date is going to be a deal breaker necessarily, but it is a challenge. Yeah. And while it's true that Carol can't remember some of the details of these allegations, her case is bolstered by the fact that she told two friends about what allegedly happened to her right after it happened. In, front, in fact, one friend she called right as she walked out of Bergdorf's to laughingly relay what took place. Are we expecting these friends to take the stand and say more? Yes, both of them are expected to testify. And that's some of the most convincing evidence that I think she'll be able to bring forward in her case. And these friends disagreed, which is part of what makes them so interesting. Like the first person that Carol talked to told her, like, this is rape. You need to, like, deal with it. And the other was like, I think you need to forget about it, which is so interesting. I think it really just it's like a Polaroid of a moment in time of how women thought about men and their relationship to them. Totally. And I think 
both of them had a pretty reasonable response. I mean, the one that sort of encouraged her to put it out of her mind was saying Donald Trump is an incredibly powerful, at the time, real estate magnate. He's going to bury you in lawsuits. He has money. He has power. And you're somebody who's going to say something happened, that he did something to you that no one else witnessed at a time when, you know, juries and prosecutors were even less likely to believe alleged survivors of assault. What good is this going to do you? It's just going to cause you more harm, you know, just sort of move on. And, you know, I've wondered a couple times over the course of this trial how friends might have reacted today if she called them with a similar story. Obviously, Donald Trump has even more lawyers and and power and influence than he did back then. But our attitudes about sexual assault as a society have changed a bit, you know, and, and I think this trial will tell us in a way how much that's the case. We'll be back after a break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I wonder if we can talk about the evidence in this case, what's been permitted, what hasn't. We've talked a little bit about the friends testifying, but what else is is material here? Like I know one of the things that Eugene Carroll's team was able to do was play the Access Hollywood tape. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy which doesn't have a lot to do with E. Jean Carroll, but does sort of establish that Donald Trump has basically said, I can do what I want with women. Yeah, this was the most interesting piece of evidence for me, just because (laughs) when the Access Hollywood tape came out in 2016, a lot of us thought, you know, this is the end of Donald Trump's political career. It's sort of the smoking gun in terms of his misogyny. He was on tape basically admitting to sexual assault, it's also the thing that opened the floodgates for, you know, more than a dozen other assault allegations against him. And then, of course, he became president. (laughs) So to see that tape brought back again in the significant venue of a court of law as evidence, to me, it feels vindicating in a way, because the judge looked at this tape and said, you know what, one thing that sexual assault victims are able to do under federal law when they're bringing a suit is to introduce evidence that could prove that their alleged 
perpetrator might have committed another sexual assault. Usually with most crimes, that's not evidence that's relevant to the case or or even allowed in court. You can't say, you know, oh, this person did something else, so they did the same thing to me. But there's a carve-out for alleged survivors of abuse and sexual assault. So the judge looked at this tape and said, yeah, I could see a jury reasonably finding that this tape is evidence that Donald Trump admitted to sexual assault. The judges also ruled that two other victims of Donald Trump may take the stand to share their own stories of alleged assaults. Yeah, there's two women, Jessica Leeds and Natasha Stoinoff, both of whom came forward in October 2016 to say, Donald Trump assaulted me too. Their alleged assaults happened many years apart, but they were very similar. You know, Donald Trump put his hands on them and sort of forcibly touched or kissed them without their consent. The next thing I know, Trump is over me like a wet blanket. And he is kissing and he's fondling and everything. The next thing I realized was he was putting his hand up my skirt. Basically very similar to what he admitted to doing in the Access Hollywood tape and what Eugene Carroll says happened to her. And they're going to take the stand and tell those stories to the jury. There's also this matter of the clothes Eugene Carroll was wearing at the time of the alleged assault. She wanted to have them tested for DNA, for Donald Trump's DNA. What happened when she asked the judge about that? So she has a dress that she said was the dress she was wearing during the alleged assault, and that's been hanging the back of her closet door since the 90s. It was tested for DNA. There was male DNA on the dress, and Trump's team objected. They, they didn't want Donald Trump to be tested for DNA unless they were able to get sort of advance access to some other evidence that E. Jean Carroll's team was going to bring to bear in the trial. The judge eventually said, we're not going to use this dress at all. In fact, you can't even mention it during the trial because we don't want to influence the jury with some sort of a mention of some obscure DNA that may or may not exist. So Hmm. that's actually, Donald Trump has mentioned it in his posts on Truth Social, but it's not going to show up in the trial. I know that Trump himself hasn't been in court. Could he be called to the stand? He could be called by Carol's attorney as what's called an adverse witness, basically so that they could cross-examine him. I don't know whether they're going to do that. They haven't indicated whether or not they will, but it's a possibility. And I think that would probably make this (laughs) trial even more of a circus than it has been. It could kind of go either way in terms of how that might influence the jury, but I'm I think if I was Trump's attorney, I would not want my client to testify on the stand. If Carol's attorneys call him, though, he won't have a choice. Hmm. You know, I've been wrestling with this question as I look at all of the Trump cases that are headed to court or in process. Like, who are these cases for? Like, I know that at its root, this case is for E. Jean Carroll. She lost her job. She got death threats. She is seeking some kind of accountability. But do you think these cases are going to change anyone's minds? Like if you've already heard her story, and you probably have since it's been out there for a few years? I am hesitant to say that anyone's mind will be changed. I think Donald Trump is 
probably the most polarizing figure in the United States in that the people who love him love him. The people who don't like him really hate him. So I think if you even know about these allegations or this case, you already know what you think about it. But I also think that's not a reason to not bring some kind of a suit against Donald Trump if, you know, there's reason to. I think the the bigger impact a case like this could have has to do with the willingness of other women to bring lawsuits against people who, powerful people, who they say have harmed them. You know, Donald Trump is arguably one of the most powerful people in the U.S., but, you know, there are plenty of incredibly powerful and influential people who have perpetrated sexual misconduct and gotten away with it because women very reasonably believe that they're untouchable. I think it's very brave of Eugene Carroll to bring this lawsuit against him. And the outcome of the case will undoubtedly have an impact on the willingness of other people to bring similar lawsuits and how future juries might assess these kinds of claims. Christina Conderucci, I'm super grateful for your reporting on this. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Christina Cotarucci is a senior writer here at Slate. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Madeline Ducharme, Rob Gunther, and Anna Phillips. We're getting a ton of support these days from Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the senior director of podcast operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow.